This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Solomon Success Show, where we explore the timeless wisdom of King Solomon and the Bible as it relates to business and investing. False prophets and get-rich-quick schemes are everywhere. Let's not be distracted by these. Instead, let's go to The Source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman. Hi there, it's Jason Hartman, your host, and thank you for joining me for another episode of The Solomon Success Show with biblical wisdom for business and investing. Let's go to today's lesson, and then I'll come back on and we'll have our main portion with our guest relating to that lesson. Much has been written about Wall Street, hedge funds, and the financial industry. The general tilt of this content has been toward the excessive compensation that people in the financial industry pay to themselves at the senior management level. The reason why this is so problematic is because the cost of these executive salaries and bonus packages are paid for by extracting funds from the customers who own financial products, such as mutual funds and insurance policies. The problems that are created stem from the fact that the vast overwhelming majority of these financial products deliver no additional value to investors above and beyond simply investing their capital into the market portfolio through the Standard & Poor's 500 Index. What happens is that investors have been sold a vision of what they can achieve through the financial industry. For short periods of time, this vision seems to be coming true during market bubbles when values are climbing rapidly. Unfortunately, all market bubbles eventually deflate. What makes this particularly insidious is that casual investors typically buy into the market toward the top instead of at the bottom. This means that when the market crash occurs, their capital base is decimated. This is the time when the dark side of the financial industry comes to bear, since the managers still collect their salaries and bonuses when the market is crashing. In the book of Psalms, King David writes, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. King David is teaching us the importance of honesty in all that we do. It is an unfortunate truth of life that many people in our world will take this exhortation to heart. However, we cannot let this dissuade us from living a godly life through fair dealings and providing useful service to other people. This principle serves as the fundamental hallmark of scriptural wealth building since it compels us to create businesses and investments that provide useful and valuable service to other people. To expand on this subject, Jason has brought us an interview with James Altucher, the Managing Director of Formula Capital and founder of Stockpicker. He writes the popular blog, Altucher Confidential. He is also the author of the new Choose Yourself, Be Happy, Make Millions, Live the Dream. James also explains how viable self-publishing is and how he gets the word out for his books. The new world is one where the old rules no longer apply and people must think differently about how they are going to accomplish their personal, professional, and financial goals. That was today's lesson. Let's get to our guest. But before we do that, please, regardless of what platform you're listening to us on, whether it be iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud, please go write us a review. We'd really appreciate that. And check out the free resources at our website, solomonsuccess.com. Here's today's main segment. 
It's my pleasure to welcome James Altucher to the show. He is managing director of Formula Capital and founder of Stock Picker. He's a, uh, a writer, an author, writer of Altucher Confidential, author of his, his newest work, which is Choose Yourself, Be Happy, Make Millions, Live the Dream. And he's coming to us today from, I believe, New York City. Right, James? Yeah, absolutely. And and Jason, thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure to be here. The, the pleasure is all mine. Welcome. So you were a hedge fund manager. You've done venture capital. You've got quite a, a, a great background and you know a lot of experience on Wall Street. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about that, if you would? Sure. Yeah, I was... Um... It kind of started off in a really bad way, and I don't know if it starts off this way for, for most people, but I suspect it does. I actually started off by losing a lot of money on Wall Street. I lost so much. I kind of came out of the dot-com world, and I made a lot of money there, pulled it all out, cash. I thought it was very smart, and then I decided, okay, I'm going to put it in the stock market, which was very stupid. And you know, there was probably one summer where I lost about a million dollars a week cash in the stock market. And I got to the point where I was dead broke. And so I took a step back and I was obviously incredibly depressed and all that. And I could tell a whole story about that. But let's just take a step back for a second. And I decided, okay, I I made a, a lot of mistakes and I wanted to learn what those mistakes were. So I essentially had to educate myself. I didn't have an MBA. I wasn't coming from Goldman Sachs. And so I had no experience. And so I read every book I could. I would I probably read hundreds of books on investing and then I wrote software to model the stock markets. And I would be very disciplined and I would trade according to my software and that was very good. I was making money and then I started managing money for other hedge fund managers and I started my own hedge fund. And then I was doing this long enough and I was meeting enough traders. I started investing in other traders. So I started a fund of hedge funds. So I probably have analyzed several hundred hedge funds in my time. And I've looked at probably thousands of deals and stocks and so on. And then, of course, during this time, I started writing for the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the street.com. I sold a company to the street.com. And I, I probably, in the course of my career on Wall Street, probably either analyzed or have written about thousands thousands of stocks and uh i can say this with you know and and also i've probably been in the management of several different public companies and i can pretty much say almost all of wall street is a total scam it's totally manipulated it's a scam i don't like it if you look at the kind of people who make money on wall street there's basically three kinds of people who make money on wall street there's the guys who hold forever so who's that? So Bill Gates, for instance, holds Microsoft stock forever. These are the ty- or Warren Buffett holds Berkshire Hathaway forever. These are the types of people who build companies. They take the companies public and they hold the stock of those companies forever. They have no intention of selling or they sell very small pieces of their company. Uh, so that's one type. Then there are the type of people who hold only for like a billionth of a second. So these are the high frequency traders, you know, like Goldman Sachs as a group. Renaissance Technologies is a famous hedge fund doing this. So it's the exact opposite of the people who hold forever. These are the people who only hold for a billionth of a second, the high-frequency traders. And this, and this is an area that's probably illegal or borderline illegal or gray area at the very least. And then finally, the third type of people who make money on Wall Street are the people who are committing crimes. So crimes we've seen are insider trading, mutual fund timing, 
older crimes from the 90s are uh, Reg S trading, calendar trading. Tell, tell us what that is, Reg S and calendar trading. Reg what, S what was a, a loophole in the rules by which you could finance companies. So the United, so the stock market had, you know, wanted to uh, attract foreign money. So if you were, um, you didn't have to be, uh, you weren't subject to any restrictions if you invested uh, from a foreign location. So you would have many devious onshore people move their money offshore and then invest in onshore companies and trade immediately out of those companies. And that, that was very le illegal. A lot of people went to jail. Calendar trading what made so many people in the dot-com boom hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, it was basically you set up a, uh, an account at a bank that does a lot of IPOs. Well, I'll just – I'm going to use Goldman Sachs as an example, but I have no evidence that Goldman Sachs participated in this. But you would trade – when you knew on the calendar that a hot IPO was coming, you would trade ferociously in the days before. You didn't even care buy, sell, make money, lose money. All you wanted to do was generate tons of fees for the bank. And then the bank would give you a huge allocation for Juniper. So Juniper, their IPO price might be 25, but it would open up at 200 and you would sell out your million shares at 200. And a ton of money was made this way. It was completely illegal. It basically stopped after the dot-com boom. So the, these are some of the ways in which hedge funds, I would say these are the only ways in which hedge funds have really been able to so-called create alpha, i.e. have an advantage over the average retail trader. This doesn't mean the retail trader has no chance. It just means the odds are stacked against you. So you have to be really careful. You have to know what you're doing. And the way you know what you're doing, the way I invest my money now in the stock market is I invest in micro caps, which are kind of impervious to high frequency trading. They're basically impervious to insider trading because not that many people follow the stock. Not many mutual funds are in these stocks because they're too small, so they're, they're harder to manipulate. Or actually, the, re the reason mutual funds are not in them is almost because they're easier to manipulate. So ironically, there's less manipulation of these stocks. So I, I tend to prefer microcap stocks where I can really you know, explore the company in detail, get to know the management team, decide if they're an honest management team or not, and uh, and then invest from that point of view. And I also tend to back stocks that have huge demographic trends behind them. Because even Warren Buffett, I, I view Warren Buffett not as a value investor, but as a demographics investor. So Warren Buffett will say things like, you can have a great manager but a bad business and it'll still be a bad business. And by a bad business, what I'm pretty sure he's referring to is a business that doesn't have demographic trends behind it. So a great example for him is Coca-Cola. Right, I was just going to say Coca-Cola. <laughs> well, but Coca-Cola was a was a value stock at one point and he refused to invest. Right. Uh, when they were selling clothes and they owned Columbia movie theaters, the company uh, was falling apart and had a very low P.E. ratio, which is the common metric for value investors, Warren Buffett wouldn't tr touch it. It was only when they got a new management team, the stock went way up, they sold off all their extra operations, and they focused on just soft drinks. That's when Warren Buffett became their largest investor, and it became the source of billions of dollars for him. So he And his quote there was, I don't have to do any due diligence. I know everybody in the world wants to drink a Coke. And he was right. He, he believes in very simple but strong demographic trends, and he always puts his money behind that. Yeah, very, very good points. Very, very well said, all of this. So Wall Street is largely a scam. It blows my mind, James, that 
people think, regular everyday investors think, that they can beat the insiders, that they can beat the high-frequency traders, and beat the crooks. <laughs> you know, I, I, It just must be so incredibly well-marketed. I mean, with the, this is not an exact number, but the zillions of dollars, I'll say, <laughs> spent on advertising Wall Street products and doing it overtly, or even, I don't know if I want to say covertly, but maybe. With CNBC, it just seems like that's kind of the mouthpiece for the vast Wall Street conspiracy. There's just like this under tone of, oh, be an investor, but they, they forget about all these other things you can invest in. They, they don't mention those. Well, well, I'll, I'll tell you several stories uh, if, if, if you have time to hear. I have time. This I, is very I've interesting. I've everything. Yeah. So, so one time a friend of mine inherited some money and her bank advisor wanted to meet about what she should do with this money. And so she asked me if I could just go there and sit with her while she listened. So I did that. And I didn't say anything. I didn't want to criticize this guy while he was on the job. You know, people work hard on the job. Whether or not they're criminals or not, I'm still not going to prevent him from at least saying his piece to her. You know, I don't need to have a fight. But then afterwards, I, I took notes. And then afterwards, I just pointed out to her five different cases where the guy overtly lied to her. You know, he would lie about the returns of different mutual funds. He would lie about why do a mutual fund versus an ETF. He would lie about extra fees. You know, many mutual funds have the fee version and the non-fee version. Many funds have the version where you're paying for their marketing expenses and the version where they're paying where you're not paying for the marketing expenses. And I'm not even an expert on the mutual fund industry. I just, you know, he might have lied to her even more. I was just jotting these notes down from my limited experience with mutual funds. And so she she understood that and she really respected what I said, but she still put money where this guy suggested because people just have an overwhelming need to trust an advisor who is going to stick with them over time, even if they're lying to her. So that's one example. Another example, one time I was raising money for my fund of hedge funds. So I went down to the city. My neighbor said, you have to meet my boss. He's the He runs the largest hedge fund in the world. He really wants to meet you. He sees your stuff in the Financial Times. I bet he'll put money in your fund of hedge funds. So I went down there and we had a great, I met his boss. We had a great conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he said, I really thought he was going to put money in my fund. And at the end of the conversation, he said, James, I'm sorry if you want a job here. We're happy to make an opening for you, but we cannot put money in your fund because we have no idea where you're putting the money. And here at Bernard Madoff Securities, we don't want to take any reputation risk. Oh, my gosh. Just to see the name Bernie Madoff on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> and, and then I would go to other funds and I would say, hey, can you put money in my fund? And they'd say, why would we put money with you when we can get a solid 15% a year with Bernie Madoff? So it really, the whole system was set up to kind of encourage people to take these risks that their, their competition were the people who were criminals that nobody realized were criminals. And, you know, we all realize now that Bernie Madoff is a criminal because he was so big, but there are a lot of mini Madoffs out there that nobody realizes are criminals and are kind of ruining the whole sector because everyone they, they either drive out the competition or they c encourage the competition to compete via criminal activity. Uh, this is why I totally got out of the business. I, I, I barely had a down month the entire time I was in business, but I just couldn't raise any money because I was competing against Bernie Madoff. How do you compete against that when everybody was telling me he was the best hedge fund manager in the business? Of course, afterwards, people were saying, oh, we always knew he was a fraud. But meanwhile, you know, they were begging to get into his fund. 
Right. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing how people's uh, attitude and, and their tune change with, with the news getting out there. But, you know, James, talk to us a little bit more, if you would, about hedge funds specifically. We talked about kind of the broader Wall Street issue. But what about hedge funds? And I, I, I don't want to uh, forget to ask you about the 2 and 20 fee model, because I read an interesting article, and I think this was just above my pay grade. I, I didn't really understand it completely, but it was fascinating. And this was about eh, three, well, four years ago, maybe, this article about how somehow mathematically 2 and 20 showed that you just couldn't make money. The the investor, the average investor in a hedge fund just couldn't make any money by the time they took the the two and twenty and and they showed it if the fund went up and down and all these different ways and there's just no way I could explain that. But it was an interesting article. Well uh, you know. well let's give it let's give it a, a try. So the market in general returns seven percent a year and since we've already concluded that unless you do something weird you're not going to beat the market the average hedge fund is going to return seven percent a year not the best hedge funds and not the worst hedge funds but the average hedge fund so of that seven percent two percent take that off the top that's the management fee so now the hedge fund's returning five percent now out of that take another twenty percent off so now the average hedge fund's returning four percent so what's inflation Two or three percent or four percent. Right, right. So now you're (laughs) left with taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're left with zero or one percent or worse. So why put your money in in a liquid investment so you're locked up? You have no idea what the manager is doing. You can't see your daily balance. And when times are bad, good luck getting your money back because it's not gonna happen. You're not gonna get saw of your money. And I could know this from experience. So Hedge funds in general are no good. Now, I do like the kind of hedge funds that do provide financing for companies that can no longer get financing. So after the dot-com bust and after the 2008 bust, all of the investment banks that used to provide financing for small and mid-cap companies went out of business. So unless you're big enough to attract a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley, you're just not going to raise money. So there are hedge funds out there that do provide a valuable service and make money by providing financing and loans to small and medium cap companies. Now, some of these funds are bad and some of them are very good, but I think there's an opportunity in that space still to find alpha because they really get inside the company, they examine the assets, they, you know, they lend the money, but it's backed by equity and it's backed by hard assets. And occasionally, and but when I say occasionally, I mean one out of 20 and you have to really know what you're doing. Occasionally you could find a good hedge fund. Now, if you're an individual investor, it's not so bad to also, again, invest in microcaps, but you have to do the same kind of work. You have to get to know the company, understand what their assets are, understand what the potential is, and you can do this before the rest of Wall Street starts to look at the company. Once Wall Street starts to look at the company, the company's dead. Forget it. Right, right. right. And, and what, why, why is that, though? Because once Wall Street looks at it, they're, they're taking all the profits for the, the insiders and the special clients and so forth? Or what? Well, well, then the mutual funds start to load up. The analysts start to do the research. So the retail investor is the last one in. And you don't ever want to be the last one to the party because then the party's over. So you want to get in before the mutual funds start start accumulating and getting in. Once a mutual fund starts accumulating, you're in great shape because they have to buy millions of shares and the stock's just going to keep going up while they buy. I mean, I've seen stocks go from 2 to 40 while mutual funds start accumulating. But, you know, you don't want to buy at 40. You want to buy at 2. 
Yeah, yeah, well, th- that certainly makes sense. But back to your hedge fund example, and I really appreciate the way you, you laid out such a nice, simple example. I couldn't remember if that article adjusted for inflation and taxes, but, you know, when you look at it that way, of course. But the big promise of hedge funds is these are the investments for the rich. There, A lot of them have minimums of, say, $250,000, and, of course, that's not really rich, but by Obama standards, it certainly is. <laughs> And they're they're for larger investors rather than the typical retail investor with a day job and doing stuff in their 401k. And and so their promise is that they'll have higher returns and, and unique investments. So you you use seven percent annually. Is that is that fair for hedge funds? I guess I'm gonna defend them for a moment. Yeah, I mean look, the average hedge fund's not gonna be better than the average investor. Uh again, how do they achieve better than market returns in the past 20 years. It's through all the techniques I described. And it's not even me just saying this. Like it's, you know, there are some sites that are kind of conspiracy theory sites and make all these accusations. People actually have gone to jail. So people have gone to jail for insider trading, mutual fund timing, calendar trading, reg S trading. Again, that no one's gone to jail for high frequency trading, but this is an area where regular regulators are heavily looking and at the very least it's a race to the bottom as to see which hedge fund gets the fastest computer and execution time and so on so eventually there won't be any so-called alpha in that so again without those things and this is the best hedge funds in the world so you have galleon uh, other hedge funds that are you know where the managers are going to jail or or sub managers are going to jail uh, you have Renaissance, where high frequency trading is is you know their biggest source of uh, profits. You know, again, I think I don't know how else hedge funds make money other than by doing this illegal activity. Now there are exceptions, and I'm I'm not calling out everyone, but if you're the average, and and when I say average, if you're the average rich guy, you're going to get screwed by hedge funds. You kind of have to really know the business, and I and when I when I say this, I knew a lot of rich people, like incredibly wealthy people who put money with Bernie Madoff. So just because you're a genius when you sold your you know, huge laundromat chain doesn't mean you're going to know how to invest in hedge funds. That's a that great takes, point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it takes a it takes a good like I've put in now 15 years of work analyzing hedge funds and it's still not that easy to spot. I still see criminal activity, but it takes a while to spot it out. There's a lot of there's a lot of shady activity out there. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point, no question about it. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not being like, you know, there's a site zero hedge all conspiracy theory whatever. People are actually going to jail. So it's not just me saying this, it's the court system saying this. Right, right, right. But it it seems like uh too big to fail is the same thing as too big to jail. You know, when you look at the scandals with these banks with their money laundering for drug dealers and all of this kind of stuff and 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 the greater financial crisis that we had just a few years ago. I mean, really nobody's gone to jail. The countrywide guy Anthony Mazzillo a fine, which to him is basically a slap on the wrist. I, I mean, they just buy their way out of the problem, don't they? Sure. And there's no defense for these people. And the problem is the laws were very unclear. So you don't want to you don't want to kind of go back and scapegoat people. But now hopefully the laws are getting better on how to regulate these things. But it's important also to separate out the benefits of capitalism 
from the ways in which individuals have taken advantage of a corrupt system. So yes, the banking system was corrupt, particularly in, from 2000, let's say, four to 2008, and even afterwards. And the government was corrupt that, that bailed them out. And, and not, that any, not that the government was good or bad, it's just that why did they need this, this huge bailout? They thought they were doing the best, but maybe it wasn't for the best. But it's important to understand banks fuel the American economy. Like people can't buy houses without banks. People can't fund their businesses without banks. People can't, the economy and innovation and technology can't grow without the help of banks, you know, leveraging up and lending to good entrepreneurs and, and also good people who are willing to pay back on their mortgages and so on. The problem was, is that we had people who, uh, we're making 380 times on average the average employee and totally taking advantage of the system, getting fired and having golden parachutes regardless of what happened to their company. And like you said, getting away with it, not going to jail. Hopefully now the next time this sort of situation happens, and it will happen like it always does, people will start to go to jail. But you never want to make up laws retroactively and say, oh, they should have gone to jail because nobody nobody really knew what was going on with derivatives back in 2006. Now we understand a little bit more how the system was being taken advantage of. Right. But there will be a new thing the next time around. The, the law is always the slowest thing to catch yes. up to the, quote, innovation, unquote, the financial innovation of Wall Street <laughs> and, and entrepreneurs in general. I mean, the problem is, what, what do you do? Like, I guess if you make a broad law, like if you knowingly are taking advantage of a corrupt system, you can go to jail. But at the same time, like countrywide could argue they were they were helping people buy houses who couldn't otherwise afford to buy houses so there was a flip it was weird because there was a flip side to the argument like a lot of people were, were moving from the ghetto to owning houses outside the ghetto and yes they couldn't pay for it later but i don't know at the time it seemed like a good thing i i thought it was a good thing at the time uh, everybody thought it was a good thing it was only after the fact that we all realized how horrible this was. And then we realized also how much, like why doesn't John Paulson go to jail? Why didn't he help the government solve the problem instead of just shorting all of these bonds that put the banks out of business? So did he do a good thing or a bad thing? Obviously for his investors, he did a good thing and there wasn't any law against it. And now he's losing his investors all their money on, on gold. So, you know, what goes around comes around. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. You know, that's an interesting question. What do you think of gold and silver? I, I just got to ask you that. I'm definitely not a gold bug. I, I never have been, although I do own some of it just because I think it's insurance, if nothing else. But I love how Peter Schiff, who's been on my show, by the way, and I like what Peter says, but I didn't have a good experience investing with him at all with his company, but he, he predicted, I remember him saying that gold will be $5,000 an ounce by the end of Obama's first term, and he would certainly be one to adjust for inflation, but boy, that would go the complete opposite way because in real dollars, gold is way, way down. It's down in nominal dollars too, obviously, but what do you think of the gold and silver markets or, or do you not play in those and, and think about them? I'll tell you why I don't play in them. And I do have an opinion on, on price, though, but I don't play in them because gold is not a currency, right? Like the U United States does not accept gold as um, legal tender. Yeah. You, you can't pay your taxes with gold, for instance. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical then, like, why then do you buy gold? Well, do you buy gold does have industrial use, but it just so happens by 
chemistry that gold has the exact same industrial use as silver and silver is like what 160th the price of gold I don't even know the latest ratio so if anything I like silver a little better because I do think in an improving economy there's always going to be industrial uses for a metal like silver. Silver is an antibiotic, uh, which is why you could put it in your mouth as as braces. Silver is used for silverware. Silver is used for electricity, you know, and, and conducting wire. So there's a lot of uh, and and by the way, gold has all of those uses as well, but it's just more expensive. Why would you get six hundred dollars in you know, or sorry, why would you get six thousand dollars worth of braces when you could get six hundred dollars worth of braces? So again. Um, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a big fan of gold. Some people say gold is a store of value just in case people lose faith in their currency, but I'm also seeing what I call gold 2.0. Like I don't think Bitcoin is a trading vehicle, but if you really believe that there should be an alternative to standard currency, then Bitcoin's a nice choice. It, it is, However, but I, I don't think they're going to let Bitcoin exist. I think they're going to attack that every way they can. They're all You're already seeing signs of it, and I haven't kept up with it in the past oh, month and a half or so, but what we've got to remember is that uh, gold, silver, Bitcoin, these are all competition for central bankers and treasury departments of governments around the world. And there is no way they're going to let competing currencies exist without trying to attack them and manipulate them in some way. Right. And, and that's why in the U.S. none of these things will work. But you see countries like Argentina, where the currency is getting devalued or probably going to be devalued. And, Again. <laughs> uh, you, you know, Bitcoin usage rises very quickly in countries like Argentina or Cyprus. Now, gold usage doesn't rise, but Bitcoin usage rises. So again, I think if you think there's a one in a thousand chance Bitcoin be could become the currency of some country, then maybe one one thousandth of your portfolio should be Bitcoin. But the main part of your portfolio should be stocks because stocks grow with the economy. The economy historically has grown over time. And that's you know that's where I would place my money is is in companies. Now that sounds odd considering I don't like Wall Street, but I do like individual companies. And if you study enough and learn enough about the companies you're invested in, you can make good investments. Yeah, so you know I remember I had Chris Mayer on the show. He's a one of the Agora guys, and he has a book Invest Like a Deal Maker. I had him on a long time ago, and I, I think that might be the same philosophy you have, where he looks at these much smaller companies and gets to know the management really kicks the tires and in in that way claims to do better i mean is that is that what you do do you you go out and meet these boards of directors and and really know these guys yes and i i agree with that philosophy completely i meet the ceo i sit down with him i meet the boards i meet the largest investors i meet employees i go out into the field and see you know what the customers think you've got to do do i i invest in private companies right so you have to do intensive due diligence to invest in private companies with private placement memorandums Oh, yeah, yeah, but uh, with private placement memorandums, but basically companies that are not public at all, like they're like tech companies. Right. But uh, I have to do extensive due diligence. I do the same level of due diligence if I'm going to invest in a public company.
What, what do you, you know, one of my things is, you know, as I mentioned to you just a couple minutes before we started recording, I'm a real estate guy. I just, I have this thing I call the 10 commandments of successful investing. And number three, which is probably the most popular is thou shalt maintain control. And what I say there, James, is be a direct investor. Only invest in things that you actually own and control. And, and that's why I like income property. I like investing in trustees, doing hard money lending uh, or private lending. And, and, and you don't have some fund manager taking all the profits off the top. And and that fund manager could also be the CEO, the board of directors, the C-class executives flying around the world, paying for all their first-class airfares and whining and dining and, and, you know, kind of the Dennis Kozlowski stuff on a smaller scale. But when you own income property, the only person that can really rip you off is the property manager. And the damage they can do is, is relatively small comparatively to what the excesses you see in, you know, in Wall Street and, and, and companies and so forth. When you invest, I mean, you don't control that stuff. You do a lot more due diligence, so you get a much better sense than the average retail investor. By light years, you're, you're just light years ahead of them. But, you know, what are, you, what are your thoughts about that? I, I agree. Like, uh, uh, you know, for instance, if I invest in a company, sometimes I even try to go on the board of directors because then, uh, you know, that, that, that gives me restrictions. Like, I won't be able to sell. But once I invest in a company anyway, I don't want to sell. So, you know, again, I believe in strong demographic trends. So this way, no matter what happens to the management of the business, I know I have a strong wind at my back. And it's the same thing for real estate. Like you say a, a, a property manager can hurt you, but let's say you bought real estate this past year, or let's say you bought real estate two years ago in Williston, North Dakota. Okay. The fastest growing city in the United States, thanks to the oil boom there. There is no way in hell you would have lost money on real estate in North Dakota this past year, no matter how bad your property manager was. So uh, it's the same thing with companies. If you're behind a good, strong demographic trend, then you're going to win. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. And, and you know, I just add to that that I want to be in control of stuff. When I hear all of this Wall Street stuff, it just, it really bums me out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I like to be in control yeah. too. I don't want anybody... I don't want to not have access to my money. And so when I put it in a hedge fund or even a mutual fund in some cases, or even in a company, I I, I don't have access to my money and I get very nervous. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, a nervous guy. Good to, yeah, be, good and to. I'm nervous because I've lost money, so much money, so many times. Now you have to you have to put a gun to my head to take money out of my wallet. Well, you, you, you know what they say, the best way to co- become a millionaire in the stock market is to start with two million. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's happened more than once, unfortunately. So now, now I'm trying to do it the other way. Or now I've done it the other way and I'm trying to hold on to it. Yeah, sure. Investing is more about wealth preservation, not about wealth generation. Uh, and, you know, the real way to generate wealth is to, to start businesses. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I agree. And I think that's great. Just last thing before you go on this subject, and, and we'll have you back to discuss your, your books and so forth. Well, give out your website, if you would, and, and tell us a little bit about your books. You, you got some great book titles out there. Yeah. So my, my last book is called Choose Yourself. And uh, I'm very happy with it. The, the CEO of Twitter uh, wrote the forward. Uh, so Dick Costello wrote the forward. And it's basically about how in today's economy, w- in order to succeed, nobody else is going to pick us. Uh, the big companies are no longer going to pick us for the great jobs. Book publishers are no longer going to pick us for big advances. Whether you're an artist or an entrepreneur, you kind of have to build your own success and choose yourself 
first before anyone else is going to choose you. And by choose yourself, I don't mean necessarily you have to go out and build a business. I mean you actually have to, from the inside out, be healthy. So physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, you have to find and uncover your own health. And then external success takes care of itself after that. The way you choose yourself is choosing yourself for health. And so that's what the book is. You can find it on Amazon. You can also go to my blog, jamesaltucher.com. I also uh, have a Twitter Q&A every Thursday at 3.30. My Twitter account is jaltucher. And that's that's basically how you can find me. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, my last question for you is just your general thoughts and outlook on the economy. I mean, you know, as the old Chinese saying goes, we live in interesting times, or may you live in interesting times, and we yeah. sure do. <laughs> I mean, what a crazy, crazy environment we're living in right now. So it's so ridiculous what the government is doing and, and just what's going on in the world in general, you know, with the, the debt we have and so forth. I just thought I'd get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so... so on the economy, I sort of have there's sort of two economies. There's the economy that's ruled by corporatism, and there's the economy that's ruled by capitalism. And I think for about a hundred years they were conflated to be the same thing, but they're actually different things. So corporations right now are completely firing the middle class. They, they don't need the paper shufflers and the cubicles anymore. I'm not saying this is a political thing or even an economic thing. This is just what's happening. They, they 2008 gave everybody an excuse to fire all their employees and the employers are not coming back. And now technology has taken over, globalization has taken over and so on. Companies are, are instead going out and when they need to, they're hiring temp staffers. So the temp staffing industry is one of these huge demographic trends I was talking about. The temp staffing industry is growing enormously, but the economy is not growing so much because companies are getting all their profits by firing everybody and outsourcing the temp staffers. So, But at the same time, we have this amazing innovation economy. I mean, we have companies building spaceships that could go to outer space or genetically growing algae for biofuel. So there's all these amazing things happening in technology that are going to literally fuel the economy for the next hundred years. And I have a lot of faith in that and a lot of faith in the United States. We've gone through many economic upheavals. This is no different than any other one. And you know, I think we're going to come out strong. Good, good. Well, I'm glad to hear the optimism there. And and you're right, we really do have two economies. And the fact that corporatism and, how did you say that again, you know, have been tied together for the last hundred years, but they're really different. How do you say that again? Yeah, corporatism and, and capitalism have been sort of conflated together, like as, as if they were one. Yeah, they're, they're and they're not. not. They're, they're, they're different. Corporatism is almost like government because they have the inside tract, they have lobbyists, they have whole different agendas and they're they're looking to to take care of to take care of themselves so that's that's a completely different thing very good points well james thank you so much for these insights and joining us today i know i kept you a little longer than planned but that's okay. uh, you're you're just too darn interesting it's your own fault see <laughs> <laughs> and thank you and every, everybody please visit james's websites and and get his books and take a look i, I think you'll be very impressed This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional 
for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.